Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 5 through 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Hebrews chapter 10 ended with a call to live by faith, to persevere to the very end, to that time when Christ shall return in power and great glory to reward the faithful, to bring judgment upon the faithless. You remember that the author concluded that chapter by quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which say this, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he encouraged his congregation, and we were encouraged by the, words of, by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit with this. We are not, we, First Baptist Nixa, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who persevere, who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So in these last days, before Christ's return, some, he says, will will shrink back in faithlessness to destruction. They will be destroyed, they will be judged, they will be cast away from God's presence. But others will live by faith, will persevere in faith, and will hear these words, Come, my faithful one, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And we concluded as a church that we want to be in that group. We want to be of those who persevere in faith to the salvation of their souls and hear Jesus declare over us at his return, well done, First Baptist Nixa. That's what we want. So we have to ask a question. The only way that we're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful church, is if we live by faith, because the righteous are those who live by faith. And so we've got to ask, what does it mean to live by faith? What is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 was written to answer that question, to show us by means of example, what it means to walk by faith, to live by faith, to believe God in the in the instances of our life that require a steadfast trust either we come to those crisis points and either we're going to believe him or we're going to disbelieve him either we're going to follow him or we're going to turn away we have hebrews chapter 11 to help us to see what that looks like it began with the definition of faith told you last week i prefer the king james version on this one faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is more than mental assent, intellectual assent to certain truth claims about God and about Jesus and about salvation. Faith is not static, motionless, past tense, taking place only 
in the brain. Faith is dynamic. It is living. It is an experiential day-by-day trust in the living God. Faith longs. Faith feels. Faith desires. Faith reaches into the unseen future and lays hold of that future hope and brings it into the present reality and enjoys it. It enjoys the forgiveness of sins even now. Just a foretaste, yes, the feast is to come, but it has a foretaste. It tastes and it sees the goodness of God and the forgiveness of sins and the goodness of God and His provision over us and the goodness of God and the pleasure that He takes when the church gathers together on a Sunday morning in worship and it takes pleasure in His pleasure. There's a foretaste and that's faith. It's experiential. Reaching into the future and bringing it into the present and rendering it something substantial, something tangible. Faith is tasting and seeing the goodness of God ahead of time. So strongly do we believe God and trust in his promises. And then the author of Hebrews constructs for us a museum of faith containing portrait after portrait, hall after hall of men who gained Approval before God by their faith. That's what he says in verse 2. Each portrait designed to show us something about what it means to live by faith. What does the life of faith look like? The first hall of the Museum of Faith, the Antediluvian Hall, uh, for those English geeks, means pre-flood. The pre-flood hall contains four portraits from the creation of the world to the time of Noah and the flood, spanning from verse 3 to verse 7. And we covered the first two of these last week. In verse 3, in the portrait of creation, we saw that faith believes God's word to be true and powerful, revealing to us a creator who spoke the worlds into existence out of nothing and can bring hope out of hopelessness and joy out of sorrow and triumph out of tragedy and life out of death. It reveals to us the creator. Living by faith begins by acknowledging our sovereign creator who, can, who creates and sustains and rules all things by the word of his power. Then we moved on to verse 4, which had the portrait of Abel and showed us that faith receives God's righteousness. Faith approaches God not on the, not on the basis of our own works and those things which we have accomplished by the sweat of our brow, but rather by faith in the blood and the righteousness of Christ, believing God's promise and trusting only in the blood of the Lamb. Well, still in this pre-flood hall, today we're coming to the third and the fourth portraits found in verses 5 through 7. The third, dis- the third image is that of a man with whom we are not terribly familiar. You may or may not have heard of Enoch before. There's precious little said about him in the text of Genesis. But he holds a certain distinction in the history of humanity. He is one of only two men in the history of the world to have never died. Which makes him unique, to say the least. And so the author draws us to him and says, pay attention to Enoch. Learn what he has to teach us. So we read in verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder 
of those who seek him. So the question as we stand before this portrait is, what does Enoch have to teach us about the nature of faith and about what it means to live by faith? What does Enoch say to us today? Well, from Enoch we learn that faith seeks God's face. It seeks God's face. Where do I come up with that phrase and what does it mean? Well, I get it from two places. I get it from Hebrews 11 and I get it from Genesis 5. And I want to show you where. The first part of verse 5 in Hebrews 11 tells us what happened to Enoch. It says God took him up so that he would not see death. Enoch, in other words, was physically, bodily translated from earth into God's presence in heaven without passing through the suffering of death. And then the second part of verse 5 tells us why God took him up. Okay, So, so notice the connective word here. Let's start from the beginning. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and God, he was not found because God took him up. Why? For he obtained the witness before his being taken up that he was pleasing to God. In summary, God took Enoch up to heaven, brought Enoch into his presence because Enoch pleased him. That's a pretty astounding statement. Enoch pleased God. Well, how did Enoch please God? More to the point, how can we please God as well? Well, verse 6 answers that question. Enoch pleased God by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you, can, you, you are a reasonable people. You can turn that phrase around. If without faith, it is impossible to please God. Then the only way to please God is by faith. That's how Enoch pleased God. And Enoch's God-pleasing faith took the form of believing that God is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Or to put it another way, true God-pleasing faith acknowledges God's existence and seeks fellowship with him. So Enoch sought God. He sought God's face, his presence, his person. The second reason I think the message of Enoch is that faith seeks God's face comes from Genesis chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me. But in Genesis chapter 5, there's four verses that detail, or rather the whole of Genesis 5, details the descendants of uh, Seth, who was Adam and Eve's third son. After, after Cain slew Abel, then the rest of Genesis 4 gives the account of Cain's line. Then Genesis 5 gives the account of Seth's line, their third son. And for six generations, as you read through Genesis chapter 5, the text resounds with this familiar refrain. it'll, It'll sound just very familiar as we go through each successive generation. So all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And so on and so forth until we get to Enoch. And Genesis 5, 21 to 24 states that Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God. Underline that phrase. Walked with God. For 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch, there it is again, walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. 
All right? So we put these two texts, Hebrews 11 and Genesis 5, and we put them together side by side, and we find that the defining mark of Enoch's life was that he walked with God, Genesis 5, and that he sought God, Genesis or Hebrews 11. So the desire of Enoch's heart was to be with God, and evidently from Hebrews 11, the desire of God's heart was to be with Enoch. God took pleasure in Enoch, Hebrews 11.5, because Enoch took pleasure in God. That's true faith. And that's the point we're supposed to derive out of this portrait in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith seeks God's face. Faith longs for, yearns for, cries out for fellowship with its creator. Hebrews 11.6 says God is the rewarder of those who seek not primarily his reward, but him. And that's what Enoch did. What form did Enoch's walking with God take? What did it look like? What does it mean to walk with God? Did God appear to Enoch in some visible form? Did they literally like walk together in the cool of the day like Genesis 3.8 suggests that Adam and God had been in the habit of doing? Did Enoch take evening strolls with the Almighty? Is that what he means by walking with God? I don't think so. Here's why. The privilege of immediate, direct fellowship with God is precisely what was lost in the fall. That's the benefit that was taken away from humanity. In fact, the restoration of that immediate, direct access to the presence of God is the very goal of our redemption. What does Revelation 21 say? It describes the new heavens and the new earth. And the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth is that God himself dwells in the midst of his redeemed people. And he says, I am your God and you are mine. You are my people. Restoration into the immediate, direct presence of God is precisely what Jesus died to accomplish. Though spiritual fellowship and reconciliation are available through regeneration and faith in this life, that direct access to the presence of God awaits us on the other side of death in the life to come. And furthermore, the author of Hebrews is using Enoch as an example of faith and not of sight. He's using Enoch as an example of faith which is defined as hoping, tasting, savoring, seeing, in a sense, something that cannot be seen. In other words, Enoch walked with God by faith and not by sight. And I think that that's good news that we ought to take some joy in this morning. Because that means that Enoch had the very same access to the Creator that you have through faith in Jesus Christ. The very same. We have the same opportunity for fellowship as that which was enjoyed by Enoch. The question is, do we seek it? Is fellowship with God the desire of our heart? Because that's the point of this text. Faith, the kind of faith that Enoch had is a faith that seeks God's face and delights in God's presence and longs for God's fellowship. And that's the kind of faith that pleases God. 
Now, it's at this point that the temptation might be to ask for a how-to list. All right, all right, I understand. I've got to walk with God. If I'm going to live by faith and so be saved, then, then I've got to walk with God. So tell me, tell me, how do I walk with God? What do I got to do? Come on. Come on, tell me what I got to do. I wake up at this point in the morning, I start reading this many chapters, and I spend this long in prayer, and I go to church this often. Tell me what I got to do. How do I walk with God? And that's not the way to approach this verse. We could spend a lot of time talking about the spiritual disciplines of Bible study and prayer and worship and fellowship with the saints, and it would be time well spent. There is a time and a place for that, but it's not my purpose this morning, and it's not his purpose in the text. This morning, we're going to stay in the realm of desire rather than discipline. Because you can do all of those things I just mentioned. Read your Bible, pray, come to church, come to connect, and not walk with God. And not have the kind of faith that delights in Him. Rather, what I want to do this morning is I want to point out the the reciprocal relationship between our delight and God's delight. Between our pleasure and God's pleasure. Look back at Hebrews 10.38. Where God says, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. So God takes no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. The implication is that he takes great pleasure in the one who lives by faith. God is pleased with those who live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? Hebrews 11.5 was written to tell us it means to walk with God, like Enoch. Hebrews 11.6 means it's to seek God. Him, to believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So what is the result of living by this kind of faith that walks with God? God is pleased. 11.5 says, For He, Enoch, obtained the witness that before His being taken up, He was pleasing to God. Simply put, God takes pleasure in those who take pleasure in Him. God delights in those who delight in Him. So an essential, indispensable element of true faith is, in other words, delight in, desire for, pleasure in God. Which takes us back to what we talked about last week about faith being more than here and residing in this this indistinguishable connection between head and heart and whole being. Faith is a desire for God and enjoyment of God. And such desire and enjoyment of God brings God enjoyment and glory in and through us. John Piper wrote a book about 30 years ago. I read it about two years ago and it's been changing my life. Completely altered the way that I think about the Christian faith. The way that I approach the Christian life. He simply called it desiring God. And I hope to teach a discipleship class on it this coming fall. I hope you'll take it. The underlying premise of desiring God is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And what he did was he took the first question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, second question and answer from the Baptist Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And he altered one little word, one little preposition in there. He says, I I actually think that a more biblical way of approaching this is that the chief end of man, the purpose for which we are created, is to glorify God, not 
and enjoy him forever, but to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In other words, God receives glory when we enjoy him. Bringing glory to God and enjoying God are not two separate pursuits that we've got to do but rather are one and the same. And that was revolutionary for me because I had spent the majority of my life thinking of Christianity more in terms of duty than in terms of delight. Christianity for me was more of a checklist of things I've got to do and quiet times I've got to have and times that I've got to spend in prayer and and things that I've got to do and things that I shouldn't do. And it was a list of do's and don'ts and I wasn't happy. That's a problem. Suddenly, however, Piper is confronting me with the fact that the whole Bible is permeated with words like joy, delight, desire, happiness. In fact, such such emotions are not even optional, they're commanded. Rejoice in the Lord, always. I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4. In other words, God commands me and he commands you to seek your joy and your pleasure and your delight in him. He wants you to desire him. And more than just desire, he wants you to delight in him. And he is most pleased and glorified when we do Just that. God is glorified when I seek and find my joy and my happiness in Him and not in other things. And let me tell you what that looks like because for a while I pondered and I said, so does that mean that I can't find joy in like eating a really good meal when my wife cooks it and I can't find joy in my children and I can't find joy in my job and I can't find joy in playing basketball and I can't find joy in my marriage and I, because that would be finding joy in something that is not God. No, here's what it looks like. To walk with God is to enjoy all of those things and a thousand more, but to receive them as coming from the fountain of joy who is God himself. And so what we do, I am in a pursuit of drinking from the stream of joy that flows from the spring, which is God. And that way, everything that I enjoy in my life is enjoyed with gratitude and with God-glorifying pleasure. And so I can seek joy in food. Because it comes from Him as a good gift of His hand. And you you know what that helps me do? It helps me enjoy it in a holy way. And I can seek joy in marriage, and I can seek joy in friendships because I receive them as a gift from his hand. And so what is an unhappy life but a faithless life? And what does it mean to live by faith and walk by faith but to live in joy and in happiness in God? What do we do with commands like rejoice in the Lord always? We do what Enoch did. We walk with God. And this is how. So I've begun to seek my joy in God. I begin to seek my joy in worship, in fellowship. In prayer, in study, in basketball, as if it's coming from God. 
And you know what? I haven't attained it and pursuing it, but I'm convinced that I'm far closer to true biblical faith and what it means to walk with God than I ever have been before. Piper has a, has a chapter at the end of his, or at the beginning of his book, near the beginning of his book, entitled Conversion, the Creation of a Christian Hedonist. And he's working from Matthew 13, 44. That's the parable of the hidden treasure. Remember, it's just one verse. It says that a man finds a treasure hidden in a field, and, and here's, the, here's the phrase, and out of his joy, he sells all that he has in order that he may attain it. Out of his joy. And out of that verse, Piper establishes that desire or delight in God as our, as our treasure hidden in the field is the essence of saving faith, and he's absolutely right. Paul says in Romans 3.11 that there's none who seeks for God. So I'm putting these verses together and I'm thinking this. Therefore, if the essence of saving faith is seeking God for joy and no one seeks God of their own natural strength, then conversion must be the creation of a God seeker. In other words, saving faith is a God seeking faith. To live by faith is to live a life that seeks for God, that seeks its joy and its pleasure and its fulfillment and its satisfaction in Him. True faith is a faith that walks with God, that desires fellowship with God, that sees in Him that treasure hidden in the field worth selling everything to obtain, if only that I may put my hands on it and taste it and see it. We're not talking about a higher level of faith up here like Faith is believing certain things about Jesus and super faith is enjoying those things. Enjoying God is faith. Faith is seeking God's face. It is desiring God. And that is exactly the kind of faith that Enoch had. And, and that sort of walking with God in the joy of our creator, it pleased God so much that God just took him. This is not, this is a metaphor, so do not take this too far, but it's almost as if God ran out of patience and wanted him there with him. This guy enjoys being with me so much, and I enjoy the fact that he enjoys being with me so much that I'm just going to negate the next 600 years of his life, and I'm just going to bring him here. I want God to take that much pleasure in me. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Enoch delighted in God and God rewarded him with his heart's desire, which was God. What did Enoch want more than anything else? Him. So God took him. And one day he's going to take all of us who delight in God. Who walk with God. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will rise to meet him in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. If you do not delight in God, he will not take you to be with him. But if he's your soul's delight, it's going to satisfy you forever. So what is faith? We learn from Enoch that faith seeks God's face. It seeks its joy and its fulfillment and its satisfaction in him. It desires him. Which may 
not be the same thing as reading your Bible every day and praying every day and going to church. It includes that, but you can do those things and not seek his face. Where's your joy? What do you long for? That's what Enoch asks. We move on to the fourth portrait in this first hall, the pre-flood hall of the Museum of Faith. And we come to a far more familiar image than Enoch. And it's that of Enoch's great-grandson, Noah. So we read this, this caption underneath the portrait. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. All right? So Enoch taught us that faith walks with God. Seeks God's face. Noah teaches us that faith heeds God's warning. It believes, hears, and heeds God's warning. Noah lived in the 10th generation from Adam. And by the time he arrived on the scene, human depravity had reached its its apex. The disease of sin had so thoroughly infected every human heart that Genesis 6 states this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty that's that's a pretty robust statement. And you have a choice. This isn't in my manuscript, this is for free. You can either believe that that's the disease that resides within your heart, or you can pretend that you're much better than God thinks you are. Because nothing fundamentally has changed between what was in their hearts and what is in our hearts apart from new birth. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. How different is that from the way that the Lord felt about Enoch? It's one or the other. Either he's pleased with us and delights in us and brings us to be with him so that our delight and his delight may become one. Or he's just flat out sorry that he made us. He was grieved in his heart and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I'm sorry that I ever made them. So God determined what he's going to do. He's going to send a great flood to wash over the whole of the earth and to destroy mankind in judgment upon their sin. But there was one man whom God was not sorry that he had made. There was one man in that generation who pleased God. Genesis 6, 8, 9 says, But Noah found favor, that is, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. There's no other way to have faith. Enoch walked with God, God took him. Noah walked with God, God saved him. From the context, not only of Genesis, but also in Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's fair to infer that Noah found grace in the eyes of God, not by his works, but by faith. Like all of the faithful, Noah knew his creator, 11.3 of Hebrews. 
Like Abel, Noah approached God not with a basket of, of works from the sweat of his brow, but by faith in the blood of the Lamb, receiving a righteousness that was not his own, 11.4. Like Enoch, Noah walked with God, seeking God's face, delighting in God's fellowship, desiring God's presence. And so with Noah, God was well pleased. So the Lord warned Noah of the coming flood and determined, I'm going to save him and I'm going to save his family from the judgment that is to come upon the earth. So he told Noah to go and to build an ark. And in this ark, God saved Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and two of every kind of creature that walked upon the earth. Now, we've got four verses on Enoch from Genesis chapter 5, so it's easy to glean all that we can from that. We've got four chapters on Noah and the flood. So we've got to pick and choose a little bit about what we're going to focus on in the time that remains this morning. But I think we can draw out three or four applications from Noah's faith. I want to walk you through them and then I'm going to drive the point home to us this morning. Number one, faith heeds God's warning of unseen judgment. Faith heeds God's warning of unseen judgment. So in keeping with the theme, okay, The author is careful to point out that the judgment of which God forewarned was unseen, right? By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not seen. God told Noah to build a boat the size of a modern-day battleship in a region of the earth that sees very little rainfall. In other words, there is no visible markers No signs of warning, no clouds on the horizon, so to speak, to tell him that judgment is coming. All he's got is a word of God. Same thing, by the way, that you've got. You can't see it, but you can hear it, and you can heed it. There was not a shred of evidence that a massive worldwide flood was coming. The only thing Noah had was a word of warning, and he believed. Okay, second, faith heeds God's warning of long-delayed judgment. It's not just that he couldn't see clouds upon the horizon, it's that no clouds appeared on the horizon for like 120 years. For 120 years, Noah worked and waited and warned others with nary a drop of rain. So let's pause there, and let's take these first two, and let's make application to us. The Bible is clear that there's another flood coming upon the earth. Not water, wrath. And the Bible is clear that our lives are to be ordered according to the knowledge and the the certainty of this coming judgment. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There is a flood coming. Peter took the same imagery and used it as well in 2 Peter chapter 3. 
used the flood of Noah as a type of the judgment coming on the day of the Lord and said, just as in Noah's day there were mockers and scoffers who did not believe and denied that the judgment was coming, uh, things have been going on just from the creation of the world as they always had. Noah, you're a madman. You're nuts. Peter says the same thing is going to happen before the coming of the Son of Man because they mistake the Lord's patience for a sign that he's not actually going to bring judgment upon the world. So, beloved, members of First Baptist Nixon, visitors who've come here for Mother's Day, let me speak to you very seriously. There is a flood coming. It is a flood of judgment and of God's wrath that he is going to pour upon the whole world as a result of sin. And Jesus Christ is your ark of salvation. And there is no other. There is no other ark, there is no other boat, there is no other refuge that is going to withstand the torrent that is coming. If we seek refuge in Christ, the ark of God's salvation will be carried safely through the waters of judgment onto the solid ground of the new heavens and the new earth and Mount Zion. If we scoff, however, saying it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said that the Son of Man was going to return and He hasn't come, maybe He's not even coming at all. And our lives then remain unchanged and we just go on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage as if, as if nothing is going to be different ever and the Lord of glory is not returning then judgment will come upon us like a torrent and we will be carried away to everlasting destruction. So you have a choice this morning, and it's the choice between faith and unbelief. Faith hears the warning of unseen and long-delayed judgment and believes and builds an ark, or perhaps more accurately, enters into the ark already built. Unbelief says... This is a bunch of hogwash, and I'm going to continue to live as I have always wanted to live. And the choice is laid before you, but do not say this morning that you were not warned. Third, faith heeds God's warning even in the midst of ridicule and persecution. Talk of impending judgment is not popular. It never has been and it never will be. And if you, if you live your life, if you believe this warning and structure your life accordingly and live in light of the, of the coming flood and hide yourself into the ark, you will not be popular. And if you take upon yourself the mantle and the task of Noah and begin warning others about the judgment that's coming, you'll be downright hated. Noah was not popular in his day, neither will you be. But, but faith prepares for and warns of the coming judgment nevertheless. And in so doing, your faith, like Noah's, will testify in this generation, in this community, in this church, to your own household. Your faith in the coming judgment and your preparation for that coming judgment will testify to everyone of the judgment before it comes and will condemn them when it does. Finally, faith heeds God's warning on behalf of our entire family. I want you to hear this on this Mother's Day. Think about how our service has been structured. 
We had a prayer of dedication both for parents and for the church that we're going to raise these two children, Landon and Jude, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We celebrated a baptism, which Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 3 is, is another symbol of that ark through which people pass through the waters of judgment. Celebrating the fact that another one of our children have gotten in the ark. And then we come here to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, and the message of it is, build an ark for your family. If you believe God's word and heed his warning of coming judgment, then you must, you must, you absolutely must make provision for yourself and for your family. Noah heard and heeded God's warning by building an ark so that Not just him, but his entire family would be saved. For 120 years, he labored faithfully, preparing a way of salvation for his family. And I would bet, just because kids are kids, I would bet that for much of that time, they thought their old man was nuts. And some of you have children who think you're nuts. They'll continue to think that you're nuts. They'll think you're outright crazy. You build nonetheless. You keep hammering away at the hope of the gospel. You keep laying board by board by board in your family time together, in in speaking about the gospel, in praying together. You keep building, you keep nailing, you keep hammering, you keep at it. Because let me tell you what, when the floods came and his family was safe inside, they rose up and called him blessed. And so will your children. So parents, mothers, build an ark of salvation for your family. It is your privilege, it is your responsibility, it is your calling as a mother. It is your primary calling as a mother to build an ark. How do you do that? Let me close by telling you. You need to teach. That's how you hammer boards. You teach. You don't primarily bring them to Sunday school, bring them to Children's Connect, bring them to Awana, bring them to vacation Bible school, and, and expect other people to build them an ark. You build them an ark by teaching. You teach your children about sin. That 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 every intent of the thought of the heart is only evil continually. You believe that and you teach it to their children. Teach them not to trust the desires of their own flesh and of their own wicked nature. Teach them that they have a wicked nature. And that's precisely why they need to be rescued. You teach them that our sin angers God and grieves His heart. You teach them that God is sending forth a judgment upon the earth as a result of our sin and our rebellion and the evil intention of the thoughts of our heart. And you teach them that the reason why this judgment has not already become is because our God is exceedingly patient and He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You teach them that there is an ark of salvation and that His name is Jesus. You teach them that this ark is sufficiently large to accommodate any sinner, every sinner, even the worst of sinners, even them. You teach them that 
They must enter the ark before it is too late. And that they must enter by faith alone. You teach them that if they enter the ark who is Christ. That they are everlastingly safe and eternally secure. Because the ark is covered inside and out with pitch. The Hebrew root of which is the same for the word of atonement. Which is not by accident. Just as the pitch kept the waters of judgment from from getting into the ark, so does the blood of Christ protect us so that the waters of God's wrath and judgment don't come upon us and we remain absolutely dry. You teach them that there is coming a day in which God's going to close the door of the ark. Sealing forever those who are inside and sealing forever those who are without. And then you pray for them. You teach them and then you pray for them. You pray that God would grant them ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to heed this, this message of warning. And that when the day comes, they will, they will hear the call of God and they will march into the ark by faith. Build an ark for your family. And in so doing, we become an heir of the righteousness that is according to faith what it says. Noah was not a perfect man. He was a sinner. He was infected by the same disease of sin that that infects every other man. But Noah was justified in the sight of God, not by his works, but by faith, because he approached God in the same way that Abel does, not through the basket of works, through the sweat of the brow, but through faith in the blood of the Lamb. He was justified before God. He obtained, he became an heir, not earning, but receiving, inheriting the righteousness that is according to faith. And he was justified not just by any faith, but by a faith that walked with God and a faith that heeded the warning and built an ark, trusting that that ark would carry both him and his family safely through the waters of judgment until it rooted into the dry ground of God's blessing. True saving faith, that's what we're getting pictures of. True saving faith is a faith that walks with God. Desires Him, longs for Him, seeks its joy in Him. And true saving faith is a faith that hears and heeds the warning of God and prepares an ark of salvation for the entire family. So what we need to do as we wrap up this Mother's Day service and this morning's message is we need to pray that God would grant us that true faith. Do you desire Him? Do you believe Him?